For the week of April 7th, 2016, this is The Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In this episode, what the Model 3 means for Tesla, for electric cars, and for the auto industry broadly. Is the Model 3 an iPhone moment for Elon Musk? Then we'll talk about how to better protect solar consumers from misleading marketing and shoddy installations, and we'll end with a look at James Hansen's latest dire warning about climate change. Spoiler, it's really bad, but it's also really controversial. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston, managing editor with Green Tech Media. Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions, is in Washington, D.C. as usual. You were at the, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit this week. How was that? I was. It was great, as always. So full of super interesting and smart people. So I always enjoy going. I heard that David Crane was kind of a stand-up comedian. Yeah, he's hilarious. And now he feels like he can say a lot more than he used to be able to, even though before he didn't have a lot of filters. He really has no filters now. Jigger is in New York City. He is the president of Generate Capital. Were you at the BNEF Summit this week? I was there on Monday, but then I had to be out in San Francisco Tuesday and Wednesday. How was the premiere of Catching the Sun? Amazing. Amazing. We filled up the theater on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, um, which I guess doesn't happen very often for documentaries. So it was really good. Really good. And I saw that it got on the New York Times critics pick list last Friday. Yeah. And then Van Jones showed up. And so I think he's showing up to the L.A. premiere next week. So. All right. A couple of housekeeping items first. Don't forget about our solar summit coming up in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a it's a must attend for those looking for hard data and some good conversation about the global solar industry. And Energy Gang listeners do get a discount. You can use the promo code Energy Gang, all one word, on checkout for a 15 percent discount. So make sure to go there today. It's going to be a really good uh, conference. And we have on May 10th the Solar Software Summit which is a new addition to that conference. We also have a live show in New York City coming up on May 4th at the WNYC Green Space. That is part of the Clean Energy Connections series. We'll be talking about the latest happenings with Yulia Chernova of the Wall Street Journal and Chris Martin of Bloomberg. Last time we did this show, tickets sold out pretty quickly. If you live in New York or you want to travel there, come join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have cocktails afterward as well. Uh, I know that Jigger has been searching for the world's best cocktail. It's in his biography, so maybe he'll find it with you. Uh, the URL to get your tickets is pretty long, so I'll just provide a link to it at greentechmedia.com. Just go to the Energy Gang section, and we'll link to it in our show notes. Speaking of Bloomberg journalists, we've got one of them on the show today. Dana Hull is a business reporter there covering Tesla and SpaceX. She moved over to Bloomberg last year from the San Jose Mercury News, where she was there for a decade and a half. And we invited her on to help us understand the significance of Tesla's Model 3, which was launched at the end of last week. Uh, Dana, welcome. How are you? Good morning. Good afternoon, I should say. Morning on the West Coast, afternoon here in the East Coast. Uh, I want to talk to you about the basics. Where does the Model 3 fit into Musk's grand plan for electric vehicles? So he started with a very expensive vehicle, wanted to move into a mass market EV as production scales and costs fall. That's been a very clear part of his plan. So where does the Model 3 fit into that? The Model 3 is, is the plan realized. So Elon Musk, in a blog post in August 2006, kind of wrote this manifesto about Tesla's master plan, which was about 
starting, you know, high market, low volume, and then moving, you know, kind of crossing the chasm and moving down the price, moving down in price while raising manufacturing volumes. So what we saw last week was they unveiled the prototype of the Model 3, which they say is their mass market high volume car. It starts at about $35,000. Many people who stood in line to order the car will qualify for the $7,500 tax credit. And now the big question for Tesla, which has never manufactured a car in high volumes, is can they manufacture in high volumes without any problems or recalls? And so that's the big question facing Tesla now. And it's a pretty significant question, right? I mean, in October of 2015, Consumer Reports actually walked back their perfect score and recommendation of the Model S because of, um, you know, rampant uh, service issues. Yeah, I think it is a significant question. And that's what, you know, naysayers in Detroit and elsewhere always point to, that you can make a great car, but to make a great car consistently when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of them, it's just something that the company has not proven yet. I think they've learned a lot from the Model S and the Model X. Um, You know, they have said, quite frankly, that the Model X, which is their SUV, was flawed uh, in part because of hubris and putting too much technology in the car. So what I think we're going to see with the Model 3 is a car that's really designed for ease of manufacturing, and it's an entirely new platform. And I think they realized that in order to achieve the volumes that they want, and they're talking about making half a million cars by 2020, they need to kind of really streamline their production and maybe you know have have enough bells and whistles to intrigue consumers but not enough not so many bells and whistles that it drives the factory floor crazy you got to ride in one how was it you know my ride was very brief like 5 10 minutes top i was sitting in the back seat uh with a tesla executive at the wheel it was pretty amazing i mean in in that it feels like a tesla i mean there's it's very much has tesla dna the most significant feature is probably this a continual piece of glass over the rear window. So it feels very spacious. You know, auto geeks always talk about interior volume and the interior volume is pretty high. Um, The unknown question is how many autonomous drive features the Model 3 will have. And they did not share any of those with us on uh, Thursday evening. So that's a big question. But I mean, it's, it's a far, it's sort of farther along, I think, than many people had expected. You know, there had been speculation on Wall Street that Maybe they weren't really going to have a production-ready car at the unveiling, that we were just going to see it but not get to ride in it. So the fact that roughly 800 people were all invited to take the time to ride in the car, I think, let people realize, oh, wow, you know, Tesla has actually been working on the Model 3 for quite some time. Yeah, and Diana, this is exactly the opposite strategy that Coda did. Remember Coda, where they yep. decided they would do a high EV range car at a low price to begin with. The problem was that it was it looked like an old Honda Civic. It it had you know zero pizzazz or appeal, and Tesla has done exactly the opposite. We're like, let's make a really high end car that people are going to really want, so that when we do come out with something that, after we've tested that with a small number of people, when we come out with the next iteration that people can afford, they're going to have been wanting it for a while. Yeah, what's really interesting is that you know I've interviewed several people who have reserved a Model Three, and many of them are new to electric vehicles completely. A friend of mine has never bought a new car in his life. He currently drives like an old Volvo that he bought on Craigslist, and he put down a deposit. Um, but you also have a significant chunk of people who are current Tesla owners, and they see the Model 3 as adding to their fleet. You know, they know that the car won't be ready for three, possibly four years, uh, depending on where they are in the reservation list. But 
they're they're putting down a deposit because they want this to be the college graduation gift for their, you know, teenage son or daughter. And so you have this kind of interesting dynamic of, um, you know, a, a large larger segment of the kind of mainstream population who now feels like a Ford, like a sporty you know, fancy electric vehicles is, is within their finance range. But then you also have existing Tesla owners kind of wanting to expand the Tesla family that they already own. Man, when I graduated college, I got a 1995 Ford Taurus. I'm I didn't get a Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I'd like to expand on that, Dana. Like, I mean, I think when you think about, um, you know, the Tesla and people waiting three to four years for a car, when, you know, the BMW i3, you can get for like $199 a month right now. You can get the updated Nissan Leaf. You can get a lot of really interesting, you know, cool cars. You know, is it, it like, I'm just trying to figure out from a macro perspective what I'm supposed to think about electric vehicles broadly. I mean, I get the fact that people are willing to stand in line for a Tesla, but how does this bode for electric vehicles broadly? I think what's really interesting is that last year, electric vehicles really had kind of a lousy year in terms of sales. And this is when you had record auto sales all across the country. So here in the United States, the kind of buzz was, oh, my God, Americans, they want pickup trucks. They want SUVs. They're not buying the Leaf. They're not buying the Volt. You know, gas is $2 a gallon. Like, there's no appetite for EVs. And, you know, the only, and so there was kind of, it was really like a, it was really a hard year for EV sales. The fact that so many people are willing to, to pay $1,000 to pre-order a car that isn't even going to hit the market until late 2017, I think really kind of changes the dynamic. I mean, there's been this whole, you know, wrap on Tesla that they just make cars for rich people. And the company's intention has always been to make cars for the masses. Now you have kind of unprecedented consumer interest in a vehicle that's not out there. So I think that many of the assumptions about EV ownership have really changed. I think one of the really intriguing things is that um, even in states like Texas, which is a big truck market and where Tesla does not have the ability to sell direct, you had people, you know, 700, 800 people deep lining up at their galleries to place deposits. So, um, you know, I would love to know more from Tesla about the demographics of who exactly ordered these cars. They haven't said much about that yet, but um, I just think that all of the assumptions about the EV adoption rate are going to change. And part of that is because Tesla has always been just about electric cars. You know, they're not trying to do both. They're not making the internal combustion engine and a hybrid and an EV. It's, it's pure EV. And I think that that uh, is a really significant factor into why there's a lot of brand loyalty and brand familiarity among consumers. A lot of people are asking if this is the iPhone moment for Musk. You had an article in your headline asked the same question. People were lined up at these Tesla stores. They were eagerly waiting to put down $1,000 as a prepayment without ever seeing the car. Pre-orders today, we saw they hit $325,000, and potentially bringing in many billions of dollars in revenue if fulfilled. The question is, how many of these will translate into sales? Do you, do you have any speculation on that? Yeah, that, that's called the conversion rate. And I honestly have no idea because Tesla has not really revealed the conversion rates on their previous cars. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that some people will get tired of waiting and maybe they'll cancel their bill of reservations. But I think for a lot of people, $1,000 was seen as you know worth the wait and they do want to get that tax credit. So it was worth it for them to to get in line early. I think the iPhone moment was just the visuals of people standing in line. And you had 
you know, people in camping chairs and tents. And I think the first guy to get one was in Australia. And as that, as those images kind of were shared on social media, more and more people went out and uh, decided to hop in line. And so what was funny was I was predicting that maybe in the first day they'd hit like 37,000. And then I started getting all these messages from owners like, you are way low. Like I'm in line in Rockland, which is outside of Sacramento, and there's like 540 people here. And so um, I think it just became a viral thing where, you know, to everyone's astonishment, people took time off of work to go join the party and be in line. And there were a lot of you know, Periscope videos of lines and people taking selfies of themselves in lines. And um, people really understand that Tesla and, and Elon Musk's, you know, sort of larger vision. It's not just about the cars. It's about like transitioning our entire energy economy. So you have a lot of people who they want Elon Musk's companies to succeed and they're willing to sort of crowdfund the ability to make it happen. Um, I think what's really interesting also is if you look at Elon Musk's tweets and the replies that he gets from customers and fans, you know, people say things to him like, how else can we help? Like, you know, I mean, if he wanted to crowdfund for a second gigafactory, he probably could. I mean, so it's, it's, it's what's, what's under threat is not just the sort of typical automaker, but uh, the way that auto, the way that automobiles are also sold. I don't know what it says that, voting lines weren't as long as some of these lines outside of Tesla stores. Unless you were in Arizona, right. unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. But uh, <laughs> um, but let me, let me question one thing, though, is that I do think that this concept of a car for the masses seems a bit hyperbolic, though, right? I mean, this is really a car for the BMW 3 Series buyers, right? I mean... Uh, right. You know, when, I mean, $35,000 is not affordable. It's still not affordable for many okay. people. Um, I mean, and and $35,000 is the bare bones. I mean, a lot of people are going to get options that will end up costing it more. So you're right. I mean, mass market would be like a Toyota Corolla. This is definitely sort of in the BMW Audi A4 range, but it is, you know, far more affordable than a Model S or a Model X. And so it does kind of bring, it, it brings brings a whole new sort of group of folks who never could have afforded a, a current Tesla into the market. And then the other question I had was, when you think about the iPhone and all of that stuff, it's very sort of libertarian outside of the government. But, you know, this really is sort of, you know, sort of tied into the government, whether it's the tax credit that expires with 200,000 vehicles or whether it's the, the mandate for electric vehicle credits, which is, you know, the reason why Audi and BMW and everybody else is making an electric cars, they've had to buy these credits from Tesla otherwise. Um, you know, what role does government regulation play in the adoption of EVs? And, and, and what role does Tesla play in strengthening the government regulations? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely think that, you know, what we've seen here in California is that um, policy innovation begets technology innovation. And California has had this dev mandate on the books for years. And what was fascinating about being at the launch event last Thursday night in Hawthorne was, you know, Mary Nichols from the California Air Resources Board and Chris Brindler from the EPA were both in the audience and they both got rides. And so you have a state that has been very clear that air pollution and asthma are top public health priorities, really pushing electric vehicles, you know, on top of the $7,500 federal tax credit in California, you can get state rebates as well. And um, so the state has just done a lot to promote electric vehicles, and I think what will be really interesting to see is if the Volkswagen diesel scandal results in mitigation funds that could add more money to those coffers or 
you know, be be dispersed in some way that would really um, further EV adoption. So Tesla's a boutique company still, but at moments like these, with this unveiling, it feels much bigger than it is. It feels unstoppable in many ways. What could make them stumble in a big way, you think? You did talk about any major recalls or issues associated with fixing the cars. Should they be worried? Is that their biggest worry? Should they be worried about a lot of people halting their orders of the Model 3? What do you think are the biggest potential stumbling blocks for Tesla at this point? I think that they, um, you know, they uh, they un- under under anticipated the demand, and you know, the the old axiom "build it and they will come" has kind of been flipped because now it's like they're coming, they're coming. Oh gosh, now we have to build it, and so they have this incredible factory in Fremont, which is automated with a lot of robotics. But they've really got to kind of internally map out. Okay, we've got 325,000 people waiting for this car. How many are we going to build? You know, in 2017, and 2018, and 2019. And what's our capacity to really ramp this up, um, which involves a lot of planning and a lot of, you know, machinery and a lot of, um, I mean, it's like manufacturing a car is not like producing an app. It's very complicated. And then part of that is comes to the, the their supply chain in terms of materials. You know, there's a lot of speculation in the minerals commodities market about not just, you know, is there enough lithium, but where are they going to get the graphite and the cobalt and the nickel and while you have Tesla doing all of this, you also have a lot of Chinese automakers getting into electric vehicles in a really big way. So I think, you know, if there was a big shortage of graphite, I mean, that could that could impact them. So I think it's really interesting to kind of look at the whole supply chain. And um, Tesla, as a small company, typically has had single source suppliers because they could just never they never produced enough cars in high volumes to go with the regular suppliers who, you know, work with Ford and BMW and everyone else. And so now as they're trying to get to higher volumes, are they going to, you know, broaden their supply chain to more than one? Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how this all shakes out. So so we've been talking about them being, and, and Stephen, you mentioned them as a boutique car company, which makes it sound like these cars are being produced in the basement of Elon Musk. But if you go to that factory, I mean, it is a huge plant that they bought from the Toyota GM plant, the Numi plant that produced such stellar vehicles as the Nova. Um, and, you know, this is, it's like six football fields long. It's huge. They have all these enormous, you know, bridge cranes that they were able to purchase from this within this plant. And the Giga factory is going to be even larger. So it's not like they're some tiny operation. It really is a legitimate large, and it's increasingly growing OEM that, that is very sophisticated with a ton of robotics in it. So just to let people know visually, it's, it's not a tiny place when you go to visit the plant in Fremont. And I'm sure the Gigafactory, which I have not seen yet, is even bigger. But just to put this in perspective, Catherine, I mean, they missed their numbers last quarter. They only shipped 14,820 vehicles, short of the forecast of 16,000 for the quarter. And Toyota and VW shipped 25,000 vehicles a day. Yeah, but if you look at their curve, and I think Dana has this in some of her articles, you know, what they expected to have this huge jump. When you look at the trajectory, it's continually going up. It's not like it went down at all. Look, I want to start by saying that Elon Musk deserves all the credit that he receives. I do think that the gigafactories that Panasonic and Samsung have already built in Japan would not have been built if it wasn't for, and Korea wouldn't have been built if it wasn't for his, you know, like um, pushing this. That being said, 
they don't have a Tim Cook on staff, which is what Steve Jobs had. And Tim Cook was smart enough not to actually manufacture the stuff in-house, but instead to hire one of the best manufacturing operations in the world, which is Foxconn. I mean, the fact that Tesla is trying to manufacture stuff themselves without any real manufacturing experience, they have huge service problems on the Model S. There is no guarantee that they actually have put the resources in place to fix it. The Model 3 could absolutely bankrupt this company. Dana, what do you think about that? So if you read uh, Ashley Vance's book, for example, he has a lot of good stuff to say about Tesla's ability to manufacture things, at least at a smaller scale, and to do it at um, a lower cost. For example, when we talk about building rockets and compare that to what governments have done. So Jigger does seem to have this counter view, whereas a lot of people think that Tesla is really good at making stuff. Where do you fall on that? Well, I think that they have proven that they're good at making stuff, but they have not proven that they can make re- make stuff at high volumes. And Jigger is right. I mean, you know, the Ford, the Ford F one Ford Ford makes more F one fifties, you know, in a day than I think Tesla has ever made in a year. I don't actually know what the Ford run rate is, but you know, the Ford F one fifty is the top selling vehicle in the United States, and so. To get that level of consistency, like right now with the Model X, you have customers complaining about the doors and the seals and fit and finish, and people are bringing their Model Xs back to the service center. And it's not like that's a that's a make or break deal. I mean, people who buy Tesla cars at this stage of the game, you know, understand that the, there's going to be some issues with the early models, and they're generally people who are very patient and willing to wait. But when you start to hit mass market, I don't think you can do that. And so. And, and everything with Tesla, it's like, it's so crazy how much has to be coordinated. Like, dry, staying at this price point that they've promised really depends on the, gig, on the Gigafactory coming online. The Gigafactory coming online really depends on their ability to source lithium and other battery materials. Um, you know, making consumers happy really depends on their ability to scale the number of service folks and technicians and sales people. So, like, everything is scaling all at once, not just, like, the manufacturing, but the gigafactory, the supply chain, the service centers, the stores, the superchargers, you know, even the communications team. I mean, they everything is sort of scaling at the same time. And, and to pull all of that off at a place where people have been working incredibly hard for about 10 years now, I mean, that's... That's pretty, that, that's that's the big challenge, I think. It's not just like we're not just they're not just scaling one part of their operations. They have to scale all parts of their operations simultaneously. Um, and what's sort of fascinating is that Elon is doing the exact same thing with his rocket company because they need to make more rockets because they're going to have more. They're predicted to have more launches this year. So similar similar issues are going on at both companies. Um, it's it'll be it's mind-boggling really to sort of imagine everything that they're going through and the gigafactory is sort of a campus where like panasonic is one of the tenants but they're going to have a lot of other things going on there and uh i don't know i mean what if there's what if there's like a labor shortage in nevada what if the unions get mad and go on you know do like a, a walkout i mean a lot of things could impact this very aggressive timeline that the company has set out for themselves. Yeah, or what if Jap- Japan and Korea undercut the factory? I mean, which is what they're doing now, right? I mean, part of the reason why batteries are so cheap right now is because, you know, Elon's been very good at selling a lot more batteries. And and Samsung and Panasonic have built gigafactories already in Asia. And so now they're mm-hmm. shipping out of those gigafactories. And it could be – the market's clearly oversupplied this year – We'll see if it's oversupplied once they're actually buying enough 
um, batteries for the Model 3, uh, but it's clearly oversupplied this year. Well, if, right. if anyone if anyone has the confidence and hubris to attempt to do this, it is Elon Musk. And I will say, Catherine, I fully agree with your characterization there. Saying it's a boutique car company does imply something very small. And what Tesla has done, even though they have all these very real challenges in scaling up to the next phase of a true auto manufacturer, what they've been able to do on American soil from scratch, given competition in the auto industry, is really remarkable. There's one more question, Dana, that I have, and I'm hoping to get a neutral party to solve this. Uh, we have this ongoing debate about what's going to happen to Tesla, and Jigger thinks that Apple is going to acquire Tesla, and we have cocktails resting on this, and so we need someone with authority uh, and objectivity to weigh in. What do you think about Apple acquiring Tesla? Well, that's that's really funny. That's like the big question that everyone has, and um I guess what's hard for me to imagine is, you know, Elon is the largest shareholder of this company. And so he, so it's not that the company is insulated from the pressures of, of Wall Street, but he is the largest shareholder by far. And so I, it's just hard for me to imagine him selling the company. I mean, maybe he gets to a point in his life where running two companies simultaneously is just too much. And he, you know, gets Tesla to a place where it's, you know, cranking out all of these cars, and he says, "Okay, like now, now I'm ha now I can allow us to be acquired." But I don't know. It's it's hard. For, it's just hard. Just personality-wise, it's hard for me to imagine. Um, although we know from reading Ashley's book that at one point they were in talks with Google when they were running out of cash. So, um, you know, in Detroit, certainly people think that Tesla will be acquired. Um, I think everyone's trying to figure out what exactly is Apple doing. Is Apple going to make its own car? Are they just testing the waters? Are they going to you know, make a car with a Foxconn, or are they looking for an acquisition? So, uh, I, I, I can't. I'm not. I don't think I can place a bet myself. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll just have to wait. Dana Hall is a business reporter at Bloomberg. She covers Tesla and SpaceX. And uh, if you're interested in either of those companies, definitely follow her reporting. Dana, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. All right. Let's move on to our second topic, which is consumer protection. The Better Business Bureau gets a few hundred complaints from Americans each year about sketchy business practices in solar. Given that there are around a thousand solar installation companies in the U.S. that have installed hundreds of thousands of rooftop solar systems, that's not a bad number. But people can get fooled by scams or simply make an investment in solar without fully understanding what they're getting into. The Interstate Renewable Energy Council is out with some really good resources for consumers a bill of rights, and a checklist to use when evaluating an installer or investment. So we're going to talk about what people should know when making that decision. Uh, the Solar Energy Industries Association has also been pretty active in this as well. And I know, Catherine, you've been talking to them. So how, what do you make of these latest resources, and what has the industry been up to to you know, try to make sure that consumers are well-informed? Yeah, well, the great news, uh, a couple of good things, is that IREC and SIA are very much aligned with what they're putting out. So it, it all echoes each other, and it's very complementary. And certainly IREC as a C3, not coming directly from industry, will have more credibility with some people than, say, a SIA, which is industry-based. But the other good thing is that they're really trying to get out in front of this. So in California, for example, in January, uh, out of 40, between 40 and 50,000 complaints that the attorney general office, general's office gets every month, they had seven 
for solar. So it's it's tiny, and yet the solar industry is taking this really, really seriously. So Tom Kimbus was telling me that who's who's working on this and has spent a long time talking to working very closely with like the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission that deals with things like robocalls, which robocalls are real bad in California for solar. And then CFPB, which is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. All of these groups are working very closely with SIA on how do we get in front of this and have the industry start self-policing so that they can they have what's called the SIA Solar Business Code that all of its members have to agree to abide by. They're trying to make sure that they set their own rules and abide by them in a way that does help consumers. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of this because the solar industry has a target on its back. I mean, a lot of the national political anger over support of the solar industry and over green jobs has faded, but they're still a ma- they're a major political target. And if we see some you know, issues where consumers get burned in a big way, that's not good, even if it happens on a small scale. I think that it's, it's more inflated in the solar industry than it would be in other industries. Yeah, we had this argument, what, two years ago on this podcast about some blog site that was, was talking up a couple of complaints in Arizona. And look, I mean, I do think that we can overestimate this problem. We, we, we should absolutely do the right thing and have best practices. And I think what IREC is doing here is really smart. That being said, the solar industry does not have a rampant problem here. It should not um, be accusing itself of having a rampant problem here. And, you know, I think that it's just it's good. It's good management of a trade association to make sure that its members are thinking about this. But I don't think this is a big problem. No. Yeah, and I think one of the big pushes is to really get out, get out in front and educate people um, at a really grassroots level. And organizations like CUB, which is Util- Citizens Utility Board in Illinois, does four or 500 events a year where they go and talk to consumers about clean energy and energy efficiency. And they just said, look, knowledge is power, especially a- around energy bills. And if you can tie this co- for consumers to that it really enables them to have a much stronger understanding and then make informed decisions. And that in turn helps the industry because you're going to generate leads from informed decisions. So there's there's basically four buckets of consideration according to, to IREC's checklist. Uh, one is to just figure out if your house is even suitable for solar. You know, look around. Are there trees blocking the roof? Is your roof old? Do you even own a roof? You should probably have an idea if you want to like lease or buy a system. Does the idea of a 20-year contract even sound appealing? Do you plan on being in your house that long? And there are all these like pre-considerations. And then you get into the details. And the second bucket is, um, you know, w- w- what the utility uh, policies are. Does your utility charge fees for connecting a system to the grid? What are the net metering rates? Um, you can ask the the installer or the utility about these things, and you should definitely understand how you sell the solar renewable energy certificates in states where those markets exist, and they can be pretty complicated. The third bucket is more installer-specific. You know, don't be afraid to ask for credentials or state licenses. Compare quotes. You can use a platform like Energy Sage, uh, which is up and coming, or you can just do it manually. And then, obviously, there are lots of questions to ask about the contract you're signing. There's equipment warranties. You got to figure out maintenance terms. What happens if you move? What are the removal terms? So IREC does have this pretty good list of questions to ask. And that's a lot 
to handle for a homeowner. I don't think anybody should be expected to know every piece of that when an installer walks into your door, but it's, it, it can act as a good guide for when the installer actually steps into your house and you're sitting around the kitchen table trying to figure out what to ask and whether you want to sign a contract. Yeah. And so these, uh, Stephen, these contract issues, you know, IREC asks exactly the right questions. And then the complementary tools that SIA has available were originally um, uh, produced out of NREL, which are model contracts, PPAs, leases. They're going to do a cash one as well so that it's very easy to access what should this look like. And so IREC is asking exactly the right questions that then you can get tools to really implement. So, so Jigger, if I'm a consumer that doesn't know a ton about solar, out of that list that I threw out there, or maybe you have a sort of mental checklist of your own, what should my top priorities be? I mean, I think the two biggest challenges that I see in the marketplace is there's a lot of um, homeowners who have clear shading during part of the day that are doing solar, which they shouldn't. If, if you have clear shading for three hours a day, you shouldn't do it. Um, and the other big thing is I think that people are going for PPAs when they should be doing loans. I mean, at this point, it's pretty obvious that loans are about 30% cheaper than PPAs. And so if you have the ability to take the homeowner's tax credit, you shouldn't be doing a PPA. The final piece of this that I wanted to mention was this made me realize how complicated the solar sales process still is. Consumers have so many things to think about. That checklist that I just rattled off was really long. Um, In particular, the details of the contract I know that solar companies have tried to release public versions of their contracts. They've tried to simplify them. You do have organizations like NREL that are working on standardizing this process. But in reality, there's a lot of detail there for a homeowner to think about. And it's a, it's a new type of decision. At the same time, like you have to think about how to sell your SRECs. I was talking to uh, our CEO, Scott Clavenna, who recently just uh, installed the solar system and we were walking through all the things that he had to, to, to do to decide whether he wanted a loan or a lease, um, how to compare quotes. And he went through Energy Sage, which is a company based here in Boston, just around the corner from GTM, actually. They have a really cool service to compare quotes. But, you know, some of the biggest installers aren't on there. The quotes came in in different formats, um, and it was sort of tough for him to dig through them. And so he, he liked the process but felt like there was still a lot of room to improve. And it's just not like buying a car. We talk about how solar services companies have really simplified the process, and they have, but finding the installer, comparing quotes, and everything else, is it's just not like buying other things like a car that we're used to. Yeah, but I just think that you're, I, I just think that you have a hard way of putting this stuff into context. I think the the solar industry, you know, when you look at, when you talk to Spruce or Solar Mosaic or Dividend Solar or SunGage, Sonova, these companies are underwriting between 40 and $80 million of deals a month, right? And that doesn't even include Solar City and Sunrun who are doing their deals. So I just think that, like, I, I think that, yes, can we improve? Of course we can. But when you compare us to the solar hot water industry or the geothermal heat loop industry or the electric vehicle industry or any of these other industries, 
they're not even comparable in terms of the total volume they're doing every month. Right. But I guess my counter argument to that would be if you're looking at Tesla and comparing them to the biggest auto manufacturers, why shouldn't we be looking at solar and comparing them to automobiles or other products that we can easily finance and compare? I'm just saying well, I, I, I agree with you compared to other smaller technologies. Solar PV is wildly better. But, compared right, but they're to not other comparable, products, they're though, not. right? I mean, a, an automobile is a self-contained unit that you can drive off if someone doesn't pay their bill on time. So you should be comparing this to financing kitchen remodelings or HVAC upgrades or sunroofs or decks. And in that case, we're actually pretty good, right? I mean, if you're getting five quotes for putting a deck on your house, those things come in randomly. You're not sure whether you know, that's a fixed price contract or whether you pay cost overruns, what happens if it rains, what happens if they don't do the quality correctly. I'm just saying, I think you're comparing apples and oranges, right? So if you compare other home improvement contracts, we're pretty comparable. We have a lot of room to improve, but we're doing pretty well. I'll just finish up by saying one of the things that Tom said SIA is really working on is resolution. So customers can call SIA. There's a line, and I think we can put a link to their whole consumer page and with all their products on it, um, where they do most of the time they go they have, find direct resolution between the consumer and the company. But they also have an ability to do more of a juried process. So they're trying to make sure that they can resolve a lot of those issues internally before this gets to an AG level. Indeed. And for the IREC uh, consumer checklist and bill of rights, you can go to IRECUSA, that's I-R-E-C-U-S-A dot org slash consumer dash protection. Another mouthful of a link, and I'll provide uh, that embedded link on the podcast page. Okay, our third topic is on some very dire warnings about climate change. Two degrees Celsius. We've come to know that as the upper limit of global temperature rise in order to prevent catastrophic climate change. But is that temperature too high? Former NASA climate scientist James Hansen has long argued that it is. And in a paper released last July, he made a more dramatic proclamation that a two degree temperature rise would cause exponential melting of ice sheets, shut down the ocean's conveyor belt, cause massive superstorms, and raise sea levels by a meter or more by mid-century. We are quickly reaching the point of no return, he argued, uh, along with 17 other co-authors of that paper. The paper was published publicly before peer review last summer, and it's been released in its final form. It was hotly debated in the scientific community in the public eye, but the findings that have gone through peer review are still largely the same. So the study raises many questions about the severity of climate change, about the public review process, and about Hansen's role as both activist and scientist. Before we discuss this, I'm going to just try to give a very quick primer on what the study says. So I read through the study, I read through a lot of the critiques of it, and it's a, it's a cross-disciplinary piece of research. Hansen and his co-authors basically argue that in the last interglacial period, which was you know over 100,000 years ago, core, uh, ocean, ocean core data shows that melting ice shut down the ocean's conveyor belt in the Atlantic, uh, and, it, and it caused powerful storms unlike anything we can imagine today. And they, they, put these, they point to these mega boulders on the shore of the Bahamas as one example, which previously scientists attributed to tsunamis. So they argue that the same process is basically underway today, 
uh, and we could actually see it by the middle of this century. People have talked about these same types of impacts, but they've talked about 100 or 200 years out. So it doesn't feel like so acute. But they're basically talking about a meter of sea level rise by the middle of this century, which is just ridiculous to think about. So their argument is that models predicting ice sheet melt are too conservative. Therefore, they conclude that sea level rise is going to happen on a meter scale by the middle of the century, maybe 10 years later, a multimeter scale. That's going to like wipe out coastal cities. And they say that we're already witnessing the beginning of a shutdown of the ocean's circulatory system, which is widely debated. And if that's the case, it would rewarm the Atlantic and cause uh, greater frequency of storms like Sandy. So that's a pretty scary scenario. I've just outlined, encompassed all the findings in that paper. It was very heavily debated. Um, Jigger, how did you wrap your head around these pretty dramatic findings, given the ongoing scientific debate since last July? I mean, it's pretty scary, right? It basically means that for most of us who are working in uh, clean energy, clearly, you know, we still believe that two degrees is better than three and three is better than four. So it's still worth working as fast as we can to to mitigate emissions. But, you know, now we're really firmly in the place of thinking about adaptation, right? So I don't know that I'm ever going to buy a house again that's in a low-lying area. Um, the Netherlands are completely screwed by 2100 um, with all their locks and dams. I mean, it's pretty earth shattering what the implications of what he's saying Miami will be gone by 2100 um it's 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 pretty crazy well the one thing that i took away was um i was when i was at the bloomberg summit there was a panel on paris and that was very very hopeful because every country over 190 countries that were at the cop 21 in Paris really get it and really want to make change. And in the U S it's, it's different because you get a lot of chatter from people who say they don't even believe in climate change, but the good news is the rest of the world does and they see it happening. And I think we're going to come along and a lot of people here certainly are working really hard to make change, but it was very hopeful to hear people from all over the world talking about how much they're doing and how they're thinking about that and how they're assessing the risk, um, both jigger from the clean energy angle, but also from trying to mitigate the risk. Yeah. Hansen himself took a big risk and his other co-authors took a risk of releasing this publicly as a working paper before it went through the peer review process. And that opened it up to a ton of public criticism. And uh, Andy Revkin, who writes the Dot Earth blog, a really good science journalist, made a pretty important point um, about public disagreements. And so when scientists hash their disagreements out, which is a totally normal piece of, piece of the scientific process, when they hash them out in public, then the average person thinks that the scientific community has no idea what they're talking about. And that's what some feared with this paper, that it could actually make people more confused because there's so much disagreement. And that's not an argument for like not releasing the paper. Hansen released it before the COP conference because he wanted to start a dialogue and he wanted people to think about the urgency of the problem. Um, and I personally like the public disagreement because I understand what's happening and you know what that, that discourse is. But it's, it is a real consideration when considering whether to publish something like this before peer review. But uh, I'll finish. I mean, I had one last thought. I, I think the most important thing to remember here is that we're debating the upper limits of what's possible under current warming trajectories, right? Like this is happening. Scientists are examining it. 
uh, they're going to look at whether it's horrible or truly catastrophic, not if it's happening. And we can get bogged down in the details of this debate, which are fascinating to me and extremely important, but it's helpful to put it in the broader context that we're talking just about the upper bounds of what's possible, uh, not whether, you know, the, the warming will happen at all. Yeah, but uh, Stephen, this also leads us to think we shouldn't be sitting around waiting for some long-term R&D breakthrough. We need to be deploying things right now today that are ready to go to try to solve this problem. Yep. I mean, that will bring us into a whole different line of argument, but I, I completely agree with that. Uh, but someone like Hansen would also say, we need to do that, but we also need to support a lot more nuclear as well. So we'll continue having that debate, and the urgency of the problem is one reason why Hansen has called for this major scaling of nuclear power, which has kind of made him controversial in, in some sense among environmentalists. Okay, that's the end of the show. Uh, we will tell each other, tell our listeners something they don't know, and Catherine, I'll give you the floor first. Yeah, so this is just building on our conversation. One of the the panel about Paris, um, one of the speakers was the executive director of Mazdar Clean Energy, Badr El Lamki. And I went to Abu Dhabi last year and I, I wanted to see Mazdar City because this is supposed to be, you know, the most sustainable ur urban development in the world. And I was told, no, no, there's nothing to see. There's not much that has been done. Only about 5% of it has been developed so far. But now they've really taken a big position and the next 35% of the planned buildup will will be up very shortly. 30% has been committed to, including private homes, schools, hotels, office space. 2,000 residential apartments are going to be built. This is something that I think we need to watch now because this is Mazdar City will be able to prove how you can build sustainably in a part of the world that is that requires a lot of energy to stay cool and to keep all of its systems running. Um, and I, I think we're going to learn a lot from him. And it's very heartening to see that they're really starting to invest in it more. Hasn't it been a ghost town, though? I've heard it, that it's like completely abandoned, like a lot of the other eco cities. It it has taken a while to get off the ground. But my understanding is that they are really doubling down on it and they're going to build it out very quickly. That's a topic that I've been wanting to talk about on the show. So what's happening with eco-cities around the world? And at some point, we'll get to it. Before we do that, Jigger, what is your story this week? So um, I was reminded by Ramez Nam, who you know is an active tweeter up in uh, Washington State, that um, in 2015, EIA's projection for electric vehicle sales um, was less than a thousand by 2040 for vehicles that had over 200 miles of range and only a hundred thousand for vehicles that had a hundred million, um, a hundred miles of range. So Tesla has already been selling over a thousand vehicles a year that have over 200 miles of range. And with their 325,000, um, vehicles, uh, secured, um, is, has bypassed even the 100-mile uh, range predictions by EIA, EIA last year. So uh, another, another example of EIA not knowing what the hell they're talking about. Should we have another debate about whether EIA is anti-electric vehicle, Jigger? Stop. <laughs> they're clearly anti-electric vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, obviously Sun Edison is preparing bankers for bankruptcy, uh, at some point, we'll we'll talk about things as they unfold. 
But for now, yesterday in the afternoon, I took a little time to go through Glassdoor, which is a site that allows people, employees of companies, to rate the company, to talk about problems, to talk about why they like the company. And I read every single review for Sun Edison. There were almost 300 reviews. Um, God knows why I went through all of these. But I was, I had a reason. I was calculating many of the, the ratings. And I think if you read the site, you'll see what I'm trying to do tomorrow. But just a few thoughts on things. Um, Pre-crash, the average rating for uh, Sun Edison was 3.64 stars. And post-crash, it was 2.7 stars. Uh, So 20% of ratings pre-crash were two or less, and 47% of post-crash ratings were two or less. And so basically, you know, as things went south, people started getting on and complaining more about the company. And some of the some of the complaints were issues with management, um, a lot of really negative things uh, about leadership, people feeling like there was a lack of vision, uh, that although that they had lofty goals, there just wasn't a lot of strategy to reach those goals, um, no clear execution plan for the growth strategy, uh, in a weird, I, I don't, I don't know what I can say about this, but it was just a little fishy. A lot of the five star reviews came in all at once within one or two days, and there was, there were a couple people who said that, that some of those reviews were fake. I do not want to go that far. Um, impossible for me to say. And many of the reviews did feel real and legitimate. But it was interesting that all the real good ones came in all at once within a day or so of each other. And, uh, you know, a lot of people recently have definitely been talking about wanting to see Ahmad's head roll. So anyway, I'll, I'll have a little story up about some of the, the, rating, um, the ratings tomorrow on Green Tech Media, but just a little, little uh, insight into what people are saying on Glassdoor. Take from yeah, that what a, you will. It's a sad turn of events. I mean, I have been following some of the latest filings with Terraform and... Um, I mean, it it basically looks like if Ahmad doesn't leave in the next week, that he will destroy so much um, of the infrastructure at Sun Edison that it will be unsalvageable. That's remarkable how fast things turn south. At some point, we will talk about this again when we have a lot more detail. For now, we are going to finish up the show. Follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app of your choice. Find our archives at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Send us an email if you have questions or comments. We do pass them around to each other. We try to get back to folks. That email is podcasts at greentechmedia.com. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. 